Well, please turn with me now uh, as we continue our series in the book of Isaiah. Uh, this morning we are, uh, we are, turns out this is a bit of a series in Isaiah 42. Uh, and we're still in Isaiah 42, but hopefully, Lord willing, next week we'll speed up a little bit. But um, this morning we're in Isaiah 42, looking at verses 13 through 17. This is on page 602 of the church Bibles. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I have held my peace. I've kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols who say to metal, metal images, you are our gods. Let us pray. Our Father, we ask now for that unique uh, and vital ministry of your Holy Spirit as we come to the study of your holy, inerrant, and infallible Word. Father, may He lead us into all truth and all for the glory of God. Amen. Well, in World War I, the 369th Infantry Regiment of the United States Army was sent to fight at the front in France. It was a regiment from New York, primarily composed of African-American soldiers. But more importantly, it was a regiment that was noted for its bravery and gallantry in the trenches. The 369th Infantry Regiment spent 191 days in the frontline trenches, more than any other American unit. And they were the first of all of the Allied forces to cross the Rhine into Germany. Understandably, the 369th Infantry Regiment of the United States Army earned various nicknames. They were known by some as the Black Rattlers, the French soldiers called them the men of bronze. But the legend is that it was the German soldiers against whom they fought that gave them the nickname that has stuck, the Harlem Hellfighters. Now, you don't get nicknames like that if you are shy and retiring. These were men of outstanding bravery, distinguished and ferocious warriors who fought with distinction. But there is a picture of them in France, somewhere in war-torn France, sitting together for a semi-formal photograph. And on one side of the photograph, one of these soldiers, a, a big man, is, is sitting there, perhaps the biggest of the lot. And in his huge hands, he's holding a little puppy that he's rescued. To the Germans, this man was a Harlem hellfighter, a terrifying warrior. 
to the French, he was a, a man of bronze, a man of immovable and standfast bravery, but to this vulnerable little puppy in the middle of a world war, this man was a place of security and peace and tenderness. His power and might and ferocity, not against it, but for it. And you understand, that is really the picture of God that Isaiah has been painting for us from the beginning of chapter 40, the picture that he now reiterates and emphasizes here in these five verses that we have just read. Isaiah is writing to the exiles sitting in Babylon as they try to come to terms with their sin and its consequences. And they're trying to get their heads around how they are to relate to God now that they are reaping what they have sown, or perhaps better, trying to get their heads around how God relates to them now that they are reaping what they have sown. And as Isaiah writes to them, he has gone to pains to show them that God is both almighty, powerful, righteous, just, holy, good, and true, and merciful, and gracious, and tender, and kind, and gentle. Over the last few weeks, we've paused to look at the first servant song and the first nine verses of this chapter, the promise of a servant of the Lord who would come and in whom all the promises of God would be fulfilled. In chapter 41, God had, as if with repeated hammer blows, driven into our heads His unrivaled power over the gods of the nations. Right in chapter 41, we had these repeated and varied descriptions of God's sovereignty as Isaiah has, has tried to get us to, to remember that God uses all things, even the wicked, in His service to achieve His holy ends. And it was this repeated word of reassurance that it was not possible for the people of God to slip beyond the reach of His grace that it was not possible for God's people to escape His jurisdiction. But instead, in chapter 41, the reassurance repeatedly came that God is sovereign. And to use the words of Joseph, Joseph, what is intended for evil, God can and will use for good. In chapter 41, this picture of God as mighty and powerful, but then in the servant song, in chapter 42, we saw how the focus changed. And there we were given a picture of God's kindness and gentleness towards His people. You remember verses 2 and 3, speaking of this servant of the Lord, He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed He will not break, and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. It's the picture of that soldier, isn't it? A God of unrivaled power, terrifying to His enemies, but to His people a God of gentle and tender care. That puppy in France was, was vulnerable, and a world war was raging around it, and it was apparently lost and unprotected. But in that soldier, it found a place of security. It found one that was tender to it. That's what the servant song showed us that while God is mighty and powerful, 
to his people, vulnerable and unprotected in their sin. He is their security and their salvation. And this is so important that Isaiah now, in these five verses, almost interrupts his own narrative to circle back around and pick it up again and evocatively illustrate it for us. And in these five verses, the pictures of chapter 41 in the servant song are picked up again, and these two images here are intertwined and interwoven to produce a chord of God's grace. And you understand why this is so important. But we have a tendency to extremes, don't we? I think it's just part of the fallen human condition. But what that means is that we tend to either see God as a God of love, tender and caring and gentle and kind, or we see Him as righteous and just and good and true, a God who will by no means clear the guilty. But here, Isaiah weaves them inseparably together to help guard us against an unworthy caricature of God that neglects one aspect of His character in favor of another. And what Isaiah wants us to see is that both of these aspects of God's character are wonderfully true of God, at the same time, all of the time, and that they both are working together for the salvation and the security of God's people. So, this little passage that we just read, it begins with this picture of God as a great warrior going out against His enemies. We could say that verse 13 shows us God as a literal hell fighter, an unopposable warrior rising to do battle against His enemies. Now, I think we can capture this image in our mind's eye, can't we? It's the image of God as, as this warrior poised in determined opposition to his enemies, in opposition to his, his foes. God is a great and terrifying warrior standing poised and then unleashing his force against his enemies. Right? Think, think William Wallace in Braveheart, standing poised against the English army, ready to just unleash his fury against them. Think of Henry V in the Battle of Agincourt with his band of brothers steely in their determination to fight the French. It's the image of God coming against those who rebel against His crown rights. The image of God coming of, of image of God as a warrior coming against those who would demand to live autonomously, living according to a law of their own making and worshiping gods of their own making. An image of God unopposable in his determination to lay waste to evildoers and silence their blasphemies. In many respects, it's a terrifying image that verse 13 gives us. It's a violent image. It's a fearsome image. It's an image that fills out Hebrews 10.31 and its declaration that it is a fearsome thing to fall into the hands of a living God. 
It's an image that picks up right where we left off at the end of chapter 41. But notice how Isaiah then adds to that image in verse 15 and, and elaborates on it and shows us God as this warrior who goes out with such force that not only is he able to destroy those who stand against him, he is a warrior that is able to restructure the geography of the earth to achieve his own ends. An image of an almighty God who goes out with such ferocity that he removes every place of defense and quarter that his enemies might retreat to. So he flattens the mountains so that they cannot retreat into them and hide there. He dries up the vegetation so that they cannot disappear into the forests and hide there. He dries up the rivers and the pools so that they can get no relief in the midst of the battle. It's a picture that says that unequivocally, there can be no resisting the Lord when He wishes to deliver His people. It's another way of describing the powerlessness of Babylon's idols that chapter 41 talked about. You remember when we looked at chapter 41, we thought of how, how absolutely almighty these Babylonian gods must have seemed to the Judean exile. Right in their minds, really all of history is divided up into the war of the worlds, the battles between the gods. And here were the Judeans sitting in Babylon, whose gods had won. Well, to all appearances, it seemed like the Babylonian gods had won. They had seemed so powerful, so unbeatable. But as chapter 41 said, and now as these images come and reiterate and emphasize and drive home, there was to be no mistake that those Babylonian idols were nowhere near as powerful as they seemed. There would come a day when they would be humiliated, when God would rise as a warrior, and those little gods would be shown to be the hollow idols that they truly were. That's what's summarized then in verse 17, isn't it? They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols who say to metal, God, metal images, you are our gods. Isaiah is saying that in the battle of good versus evil, the outcome is a foregone conclusion. The idols will fall and all those who trust in them will fall with them. But notice how they are interwoven with these descriptions of the might and power of God. These terrifying, violent images of God as this, as this hell fighter going forth are descriptions of God's tender care towards those who put their faith in Him. In verse 16, the images change, changes from that as, of God as a warrior to an image of God showing tremendous tender care and mercy, caring for the vulnerable and the helpless. It gives us a picture of God leading the blind. It gives us a picture of God restoring their sight. It gives us a picture of God promising never to forsake them. 
Now, it's clear from verse 19 in the passage that we'll look at next week that the blind here are the exiles sitting in Babylon. And so, this is not just God being tender towards the naturally vulnerable, like that soldier with his puppy. It's actually so much more than that. What verse 16 is showing us is God being tender and merciful with those whose vulnerability is self-inflicted. It's God showing tenderness and mercy to the utterly undeserving, and while He is unflinching in His opposition to evil, and while His power is unleashed against all and any who would oppose the establishment of His covenant promises and the salvation of His people to to His people, despite their sin, despite their foolishness, despite their self-inflicted wounds, His posture is one of abundant and tender care. He's merciful to them. He's kind to them. He takes them in His hand to guide them in the way that they should go. He comes to them as that great heavenly physician to restore them, to turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. But why does He do this? Why does He come against the enemies of His people with such ferocity? Why does He care for His people with such tender kindness? Well, verse 14 gives us the answer. It is all because of the intensity with which He loves His people. But look at the metaphor that's used there. It's the metaphor of a woman going into labor. Right? It's, it's an intensely evocative picture that is designed to grab our emotions. Right? Perhaps you've been in a labor and delivery room. Maybe you've been there at the birth of your own children. But, but even if you haven't, you've, you've likely seen it on TV or, or in a movie. It's hard to imagine a more intense situation in all of life. And Isaiah says that that's, that's the picture that we have to have in our minds here. Now, what does he mean? Well, on the one hand, it's an image of God's restraint. We've noted several times that the parallels that run all through this these, these words of Isaiah to the exiles, the parable, parallels here with the parable of the prodigal son. And just like with that father, we have noted how God has let Judah run in their, in their sin. And He has let them bear the consequences of their sin, letting the surrounding nations dominate them and take them into exile. But, of course, none of this is because He is cruel and uncaring. Instead, all of it, part of God's gracious working in the lives of His people, letting them see the awfulness of their sin, letting them see their weakness and their vulnerability and their desperate need for a Savior. But, but here, what verse 14 is saying is that just like with pregnancy, that waiting, that restraint, well, it will give way to a day where restraint can be exercised no longer. 
right? Maybe this was you, mothers, husbands. You know, there are some women who, when contractions start, they think to themselves, I can't go through with this. I can't do it. It's, it's too much. And they, they desperately try to stop it. But of course, it cannot be stopped. A day when restraint must give way. And here God is saying that that his restraint will come to term. And his passion for his people must be delivered. Right? It's an image of an almost explosive love of God for his people that, that while for a season it, it seemed like he was silent, maybe even seemed like he had forsaken his people, now God says he cannot be quiet anymore. He cannot restrain himself any longer. He must cry out and he must come and save his people. Why does God do this? Why does he come against the enemies of his people with such aggression? Why does he deal with his people with such intensity? It is because there is a ferocity to his love for his people that can only really be described with the intensity of a woman going into labor. And for the Judeans sitting in exile, they'd have to wait for this. They were, maybe to use the image, perhaps in the third trimester. As God took them into exile under Nebuchadnezzar, and they would have to wait still for the day of their deliverance. But this is saying it will come. It will all come to term. And there will be a day where there can be no more waiting and no more restraint. Seventy years they would sit in Babylon, but in 539 BC, by the decree of Cyrus, the Lord would work once again in the heart of a pagan king to achieve his will. The strongholds of the hearts of that pagan idolater, no match for the sovereign purposes of God. And on that day, the people would be delivered restored from their captivity, the love of God for His people no longer restrained, and then sent back to rebuild as the restored people of God, the recipients of His mercy. The exiles would have to wait just a, a little longer before they saw and experienced the powerful love of God working on their behalf, but here was the promise that it is coming and it is unstoppable. As they waited, they waited in the assurance of all the power and might of God working for the defense and protection of His people despite their unworthiness to receive it. But of course, that restoration from their Babylonian captivity would ever, only ever be, could only ever be a foretaste of an even better fulfillment. There was always something anticlimactic about the return from exile. It was good, undoubtedly, to be back from Babylon. It was good, undoubtedly, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, but there was always something missing. For all those who returned, there were still those who stayed in the diaspora, spread 
a bride. Jerusalem never quite regained its former glory. And you remember the response of the old man, Ezra tells us, when they saw the rebuilt temple. These men who had seen it before Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it, when they saw the rebuilt temple, what did they do? In the midst of joy, they wept. They wept because it was a shadow of its former self. And you understand all of this worked together to teach the Jews that this, this return from Babylon, this was not it. This was not truly the restoration that Isaiah speaks of. And it would not ultimately be until the cross that we would see the fulfillment of these verses. It would not be until the cross of Christ that we would see God go forth as a valiant warrior to finally and fully defeat all His and our enemies. It would not be until the cross of Christ that we would see God show ultimate tenderness and kindness towards His people. Ray Ortland, commenting on this passage, wrote, God's grace is more than a lenient, kind, a lenient niceness. The grace of God is His resolve that will settle for nothing less than our eternal joy in Him alone, no matter what the cost to Himself. That is what we see demonstrated so perfectly at the cross, isn't it? The grace of God in His unleashed power, fighting against all the powers of evil, crushing their head, putting them to death in His death, as he, Colossians 2.15, we read earlier, as our assurance of pardon, as he disarmed them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. God fighting for his people. God restoring his people. God opening their eyes. God replacing our sinful blindness with light and life in Christ. And so, Christian, these five verses, they describe the love of God for you. They describe the grace of God for you. Blinded in your sin, vulnerable and helpless in your sin, the power and might of God, Isaiah says, is not working against you, but for you for your protection, for your restoration, all of your sin, borne by Christ on the cross, all of your guilt wiped away as God Himself took the cost of your forgiveness, bearing the penalty of His own loss, so that there is now, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil, the accuser of the brethren, thrown down and defeated by God, our mighty warrior. But Isaiah wants us to see what he emphatically wants us to see is that there is a ferocity in God that lies behind his love for his people. A ferocity that is terrifying for those who are opposed to him a ferocity that will not let the enemies of His people go, but will bring perfect justice and judgment against any and all who do them harm. 
but a ferocity that is the ground of security and peace for all those who put their trust in Him. A ferocity of love that is willing to bear the cost and do all that needs to be done so that the people of God can be forgiven of their sin and redeemed from the consequences of that sin and reunited to a holy God who we now call through the Spirit our Abba Father. You see, God is not either a powerful king or a loving father. In Christ, God is our Father, the King, who has brought us in and called us His own and uses all of His unrivaled power for our good as well as His glory. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we confess that we are prone to think unworthy thoughts of you, tending in one direction or another. Lord, it is because in our sin we, we struggle, and perhaps most of all, we struggle to believe that you love us like this. We pray that by your Spirit, you would teach us more and more of your full-orbed glory as our warrior, King, Redeemer, Father, that we would delight ourselves in this ferocious love of God for us, that we would rest in that. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these images, powerful evocative, and we pray that by your Spirit you would press them into our hearts, that we might see you as you are, and therefore worship you as we ought. Amen.